0: Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome back to another episode of Believe in the Press Row, a truly uh, unique episode. On one other occasion, I've done a podcast where I've kind of stepped outside of my sweet spot of sports and media and, and fun and games. And we had, um, Dr. Howard Evans from Mount Sinai Hospital. The very early days, it seems like years ago, of Corona. Just as we were all getting locked in, so to speak, talk about what was going. And we will have Howard back, but really uh, thrilled today to have a guest on. That I don't think we're going to touch on sports in any way. We certainly have never talked about sports together. Uh, there, there could be a facet of it as it relates to college athletics, but. We have joining me today who, someone who I consider to be, uh, if not the leading, certainly one of the leading experts on modern-day education, both in terms of um, grade school, secondary, and obviously post-secondary, which are near and dear to my heart. We are in the midst of a pandemic that's going to have seismic effects on learning. The college system in both countries is under attack. We can talk a little bit later than that. But I have uh, John Couch with me. Uh, thrilled to have John. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. So for those who, who don't know, John has many stories to tell. Uh, John was one of, if not Steve Jobs' first hire at Apple. I believe the two of you worked together at Xerox. Steve went over to Apple, and I believe he hired you at Apple back in the 80s? 80s? Yeah, I was a 54th employee at Apple working with
1: Steve as a uh, he, at that time, he was the uh, vice president of new products and he hired me as a director of new products. Uh, the Xerox relationship came later uh, okay. when we visited.
0: Okay. And uh, in addition to, to joining Apple and working for Steve Jobs, which will lead to some interesting stories and lots of questions, uh, you also headed up their education department, became their first vice president of education and wrote a book. Uh, Later after leaving Apple uh, the last time called rewiring education how technology can unlock every student's potential That's what brought the two of us together Um, You're working on a new initiative that I want to talk about and obviously a new book Uh, I am super thrilled to have you and and really appreciate you taking a time with everything that's going on in, in a subject that's near and dear to my heart education at a time where things are certainly unusual, to say the least.
1: It's an interesting time, very interesting.
0: So, I'll tell a funny story. Um, A Couple of years ago, I'm on the board of advisors of a a venture capital firm. They were having their annual meeting in Napa Valley, two or three day affair. And I woke up the morning of the last event and was really trying to decide whether I wanted to attend the last event or go back to San Francisco, have a meeting and then get on a plane to come back to Seattle. I vividly remember tossing the idea back in my head. Do I go or do I not go? Finally decided to go, got to the breakfast late, had to sit at a table all by myself and overwalked a gentleman who said, do you mind if I sit here with you? And I said, nope, absolutely not. And he was holding a stack of books and he said, would you like a copy of my book? And not to be rude, I said, sure, what's it about? And he said, well, I, was, I, I started the education department at Apple and uh, worked for Steve Jobs and I've got a, a philosophy on how broken the education system is and how to fix it. And that was John and that's how John and I met. It is one of the most, I'm not a, uh, a typical reader of nonfiction. Um, and it's one of the best books I've ever read, and it spoke near and dear to my heart. Uh, When I was in the third grade, I was diagnosed with dyslexia. I don't really know what that means, except that back then in the dark ages, um, they told my parents that I wasn't gonna graduate high school and that I better get used to asking the very important question, do you want fries with that? The Mm -hmm. world has certainly changed, but education remains important to me, And at the same time, I have two kids who are in the 11th and 9th grade here in Seattle. So the next steps of education is future. And and really, that's what brought us together, John. And um, your book really was fantastic. I'm not even sure where to start. Why don't don't we start with, we'll put put that aside because that's going to go a long time. One of the things that you and I talked about was your relationship with Steve Jobs. He is certainly... uh, his presence is felt in today's society, I'm going to say, by each and every one of us, certainly in North America, if not globally. We are, we are surrounded by a product of his all the time. I can't imagine we're ever anywhere within five or ten feet that someone doesn't have one of Steve's products. I believe it was him who said, I envision a day one time where everyone will have a computer at home. Holy hell, did he expand on that.
1: Yeah, um, Steve, I was fortunate enough to um, actually my new book is uh, well right now the title is My Life at Apple and the Steve that I knew uh, because I just felt that all of journalism, everything that's been written by Steve has really not captured the human nature of Steve. Um, There's no doubt in my mind that Steve was a genius and as a genius, you are a very complicated uh, <laughs> individual. And I think people see only you know, pieces of that, of that, comp- uh, of that you know, complexity. So I, I just wanted to tell uh, my story, uh, how I ended up at Apple, what uh, decisions that I made that, that uh, basically connected the dots, if you will, that led to Apple. And led to my two tours of duty um, at Apple, but at the same time, uh, relate stories that people have not heard of our relationship and the things that we we did together. So, um, you know, I actually start off the book and said, "Look, you know, you're going to learn some things about Steve that no one's ever talked about."
0: Um, So, So, for those who don't know, you you joined Apple in 1978. 1978.
1: Yeah, um, what's interesting is I was one of the first 50 people to get a computer science degree at UC Berkeley, uh, and uh, in 19 well, undergraduate 69, master's 70, doctorate work uh, unfinished, by the way, <laughs> uh, that uh, Todd Rose talks about in his new book, The Dark Ages, and so I was I was in, into computer science in a very Early, early time spent about five years at Hewlett-Packard building software for a two hundred fifty thousand dollar computer. When I met Steve, and he showed me, you know, one his twenty five hundred dollar computer, but more important, his vision for technology that it would, in fact, uh, allow us to 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 go places we couldn't go without without the technology to to be innovative, to be creative. Um, You know, I I certainly identified with that and joined Apple in 1978, working for Steve, going from Hewlett Packard from managing, you know, a lot of people taking about a $35,000 pay cut and go to work with a, for a 21 year old kid and managing no one.
0: So you join Apple and you eventually become VP product, helping to lead the launch of the Lisa computer.
1: The action is a step in between that uh, as a director of new products we my job was really to define a product that anyone could use uh, the, the The challenge with the Apple II, of course was unless you could program in basic or in DOS uh, and write your own applications, there really wasn't a third party world that existed in the, in those days and so I think six months after I joined Apple. They made me vice president of software, uh, with with the goal to really create software for Apple. Because it, up to that point in time, the only two programmers, putting Woz aside, were were two individuals, Randy Wigington and Dick Houston, who came to work at three o'clock in the afternoon because that's when high school got out. <laughs> and, and so my my job was really to to uh, define a, a, a strategy a software strategy that would encompass the Apple II, the Apple III, and, and this yet to be named new product, which eventually became Lisa. And uh, then I became the vice president and general manager of the, of the Lisa division.
0: So you were there for six years?
1: I was there, yeah, from 78 through 84,
0: yeah. You then left and took over a struggling school?
1: Yeah, I I I I left and, and moved my family to, to uh North County San Diego, Rancho Santa Fe, and really at that time was really asking the question, what's life all about? Um I, you know, certainly I had been on a very fast pace at Apple. I had made enough money at Apple uh that I could no longer justify working twenty hours a day to put food on the table or 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 to, you know, send my kids to college. And um, I was asked to go on the board of a struggling uh, Christian school in North County, San Diego. I agreed. Uh, It was obvious to me that they had lacked a vision, lacked direction. So I offered to write them a a business plan, uh, which I did. And uh, I ended up basically staying at Santa Fe for 10 years. The first couple of years as their acting Headmaster informally, and then their chairman of the board, and watched the school go from a school that was in debt, uh, 30 days lease on their property, to to a to a uh, a school today that's honored by the by, by the U.S. both lower middle and upper school, and so that was that was 10 years of my life, and so that's where I really started to get interested in education. Because there wasn't a student in the school that wasn't unique, that that wasn't a a little a genius in some aspect. It may not be a physics major, it may not be a doctor, but it could have been an artist. It could have been uh, in music. I remember uh, one instance where I split the two semesters apart and created an intercession, a three-week intercession, and invited uh, a parent who. Was into video production to teach those kids that were interested in video production, and one of the young boys who was in sixth grade, flunking everything, just found his passion in video production to such a point today that he has his own his own company. So I learned a lot about about the, the nature of learning, uh, the the potential, if you will, of each and every individual, and. Um, you know, realize that the model that we have in school is really based on memory. And I think in a lot of cases, you talk about the brilliant kids and then the kids at the bottom of the spectrum. In a lot of cases, it's directly proportional to their ability to memorize. And yet some of the kids at the bottom of the perspective are the most artistic and and innovation. And, 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 you know, my book talks about one of my sons, my middle son, uh, who dropped out of school, uh, I was able to encourage him to go back to Savannah School of Art and Design in architecture uh, because he told me, he says, dad, I think in 3D and he graduated with honors, was given a scholarship, graduated with honors and his first design, he won the Dwell Award and today he has his own company. So obviously he, he took a different path than the traditional well-defined you know, path of, of education. And I think Todd Rose does a good job in his book, "The Dark Ages," talking about you know taking a new path. Um, so uh, when uh, when Steve came calling, uh, I knew that technology was going to was going to change society because I sat in front of a $7.5 a half million dollar computer at Lawrence Livermore at UC Berkeley, watching the people in the People's Park in the streets. You know, trying to change society, with the realization that I was sitting in front of the technology that was going to change society. So when I met Steve, you know, we we hit it off quite well, and um, you know, and I made I made the tough decision to you know to leave a, a job of comfort and a well defined future to risk um, based on on the passion. That I had, and the belief that technology would, in fact, empower individuals.
0: So, let's let's talk about Steve for a minute. And you have a new book coming out. I I, I didn't know him, never met him, <laughs> never in the same room with him. Uh, I will tell you that if um, if you go strictly based on Hollywood and <laughs> numerous shows, documentaries, and movies about Steve Jobs, I think you would agree if you didn't know any better, he's a most unlikable character.
1: Yeah, some people refer to him as an asshole, actually.
0: Your words, not mine. (laughs) I I was brought up that we don't speak ill of the dead.
1: Yeah, Um, no, I, what I, saw what to me, it was, it was more of Steve had a low tolerance for fools. So people who tried to you know, project themselves as knowing more than they really knew, Steve would catch very, very quickly and would respond uh, very quickly. And I think, you know, it's that low tolerance of fools that have, have has mapped into, you know, what people have written about him. Um, I knew him from age 21, um, you know, um, he trusted me because I never tried to BS him. You know, if I didn't have the answer, I would say, okay, I don't have the answer. Give me, give me a, you know, give me a day to find the answer. Um, and, you know, when he, when he asked me to come back the second time, you know, he said, you know, he goes, John, I, I, I need to surround myself with people that uh, are honest that uh, can help me make decisions that are trustworthy, um, And uh, I don't have a lot of those people. And um, so you know, the book book, book you know, uh, tells stories, stories uh, that my relationship with Steve through the course of the of the ten years that I, I was uh, the vice president of education. Uh, building the ed- education business from less than a billion to ten billion, um, and uh, and so you know I think people are going to see um, a different set of dots, if you will, that connect the personality and who Steve, who Steve really is underneath that that surface. Um, so you know I enjoyed. I actually you I. So one advantage of COVID, I guess, is I've been locked up for 61 days and, and, and we wrote, wrote the book in, in that particular time and it's now sent it out to particular uh, publishers uh, waiting to see who, who really uh, bites.
0: So what, what do you think was the most misunderstood facet of, of Steve Jobs? Um, uh, there's 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 more than one you know I
1: think you know probably one that that and I think has been has been talked about uh, particularly by um, um, the rocker uh, and that is that that Steve didn't give back okay Steve gave back but he gave back quietly okay in fact. He helped people who had cancer, he would fly them on the plane, he introduced them to his doctors, but in every case, he made you promise not to tell anybody. Mm-hmm. So he, he wasn't the guy that went into he won the his mar- name the buildings. Yeah, and he wasn't the guy that went into the marketplace and, and said, "Look what I'm doing." Everything was done behind the scenes. He did not want any credit for it. He did it out of his heart. And, that, and that, that happens a lot. I mean, the number of requests that we got, you know, from students for computers that we answered, that Steve answered. One in particular, I remember a fifth grade boy uh, written in pencil on lined, you know, school paper saying that a school uh, would not allow a Mac. And uh, he felt that he really needed one to be creative. We sent him one. I heard from him when he shared with me his uh, his essay that he wrote to Stanford on the three people that influenced him the most. One of us being Apple, Steve, and myself. And then I heard again from him in the in the freshman year at Stanford as he was accepted into the computer science program. So I mean, there are so many stories like that. You know, we tend to look at that, you know, the watch, the computer, the the iPad, the, you know, Apple TV, as Steve's contributions to society, but he had just as many contributions to individuals.
0: So here's an unfair question. Myself. (laughs) So here's an unfair question. What was next for him? What did he see as the next big thing?
1: I think, I think the the TV, I you know, I, I felt I think he really felt that we needed to disrupt TV. Um, I think he shared with me uh, the vision of of a of a free online learning environment that wasn't based on memorization, but that was based on on a pedagogy that we created at Apple called challenge-based learning. Where students solved real problems, um, you know, sort of equivalent what you would if you were doing research at the university rather than sitting in a desk in a ninety-minute classroom listening to a lecture. Um, he had a real heart for uh, elementary and high school. I think he, I think he felt that that by the time you got into college, you should know better. You know, and so a lot of his effort was geared towards, you know, K through 12. Um, you know, I think he, um, unlike Hewlett Packard where I was before, where they had a big program of giving things away free to the university, uh, he would rather give things to the lower grades. Um, and I think the challenge today's university is, what business are you in? Are you in the research business or are you in the, teaching business. And I, you know. Um, what do you think the answer to that is? I think, I think their answer is they're in the research business. And, uh, and which means then that their pedagogy should entirely change. And instead of taking two years of reformation courses, or formation courses, we should be doing research the day we walk on the campus. We should be assigned to a researcher, and our learning should come through through solving real problems. Um, it's it's going to be interesting going forward because uh, you know we we were moving towards a society where only the rich can get educated and that's unfortunate and um, you know we can talk a little bit about some of the things that I'm doing now uh, trying to address uh, that issue but um, you know I think um, the challenge-based learning uh, pedagogy, if you will is it covers uh, coding, it covers design thinking, it covers entrepreneurship, And so, uh,
0: I, you're, you know, you're, 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 I'm gonna interrupt you for a sec. Your book is much more than that. Um, and, and in it, what it does so brilliantly is it paints a picture in your mind, what the school of today should actually look like. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you say in the book that rewiring education is all about a series of challenging and relevant experiments that play off pre-existing experiences where an engaging and sometimes unpredictable learning process ultimately leads to a clear understanding of the results.
1: Yeah, yeah, we, we sort of look at it as, um, if, you, if you thought of it as an onion skin. it's me, you know, who am I, my family, my community, my world, my purpose, and the purpose being, you know, who's gonna solve these big problems that are coming our way if we haven't been trained in school to solve problems? Well, we're trained in school is to memorize the formula. You know, and uh, you know, I share my does, own-
0: Why doesn't that work?
1: <laughs> I share my own experience in the book, right? I'm memorizing my way up to my junior year in physics. And I walk into the exam and there's one question. And it's described the motion of a spinning top in free space, never carried covered in the lecture, never covered by the TA, not answered in the book. And I watched a lot of really smart people, you know, panic. And that's when I realized that, boy, I'm in trouble because that's not what a job's gonna pay me to do you know to do what's already been done they're going to pay me to solve a problem that hasn't been solved and the answers aren't in the back of the book under odd and that's why we developed the challenge based learning environment and and it it's spread all over the world right now in pockets it's just not um scalable universally scalable but the kids really shine and and they after they've solved the problem like um is my water safe to drink in the desert community where we're throwing garbage into the water table? Uh, there's a realization that, wow, you know, I am smart. I can give back to society. Uh, you know, in the book, we talk about learning comes from intrinsic motivation, not extrinsic motivation. Our schools are based on extrinsic motivation.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: Well, it means you do this or else, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, intrinsic motivation means that you've, 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 you've discovered your gifts, your passion, your excitement, and you, you're applying that, and the other problem with schools is we don't allow for failure, right? I mean, in, in Apple, you know, we failed, but we learned from those, from those failures. Our schools don't allow failure. Right. And so we, we 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 block off, we put concrete on the innovative portion of our creative portion of our brains. We learn how to play the game, how to take the test, and you know, and they tell us you're smart, you're National Honor Society, we're giving you a scholarship to college. But it's it's all wrong. It's all wrong. And um, you know, and I I think Todd Rose, who's who's approached this from an academic perspective with his with his two books. Uh, I sort of approached it with with rewiring education from um, experimental, you know, from my own experience.
0: So if you were in charge, wouldn't that be great? What would what would elementary school look like? You know, those those early grades one through whatever? What? How would that how would that uh, classroom of the future look?
1: OK, I will share with you a, a, an environment that we actually developed in Mexico in uh, a school called Varma. Uh, and the whole school is based on challenge-based learning. And uh, we developed a curriculum from age 3 through 16. Uh, the students at 3, 4, and 5 uh, are given challenges. Um, they're exposed to 18 different countries. Um, we have over 450,000 digital resources, including over 4,000 augmented reality learning environments. And the whole school is given a challenge. So the example that when I, first, when I visited last was energy. And so the, the project, the co, you know, the, the year long project for every one of those grades, was energy, the eighth and ninth graders built a solar powered back uh, golf cart, uh, which failed originally because their material was too, too heavy. Um, the junior high built a solar powered backpack that you could plug your iPod and your iPad in and the, the younger kids built a solar powered oven. Now, when I went into a school in the United States in entrepreneurial week, it was a bunch of food courts, and the winners who made the most money, <laughs> not who were the most creative and innovative. So there's your two, you know, there's your two scales, you know, left and right, if you will. Um, so I would, I would, and in the problem is, is that education in the United States is not going to change top down, unless it's some drastic, you know, blow it up type of a thing.
0: You mean and
1: like so, what I, what we, what my goal was after rewiring education, was to look at schools all over the world because I, 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 read at Apple's education business, and we did for a year, and we found schools that obviously were using challenge-based learning, but we couldn't find a, a model that was scalable, you know, and so our, our second book was going to be called um, Education Rewired, by sharing with you, as a parent, a school that's done it all and done it well. And so we put all that research and all all the examples on our website, rewiringeducation.com, and we backed up. And we started three nonprofit organizations. One called Beyond School, which is licensing the curriculum from Mexico. Two, Lab Schools, Varmon being one and a school in East Palo Alto called Oxford Day Academy being the second that takes immigrant students who are two and three years behind in high school and uses the pedagogy of every student having an iPad and and the Oxford tutorial method. And three, we took a look at the problem of of the teacher shortage and the lack of, of training on the teacher and so we created a teaching internship program. Uh, We wrote a white paper, uh, teaching internship program. We partnered with Oxford University to form the Oxford Teaching College. And the intern must come from the school district area where they internship. So they they know the churches, they know the YMCAs, they know the boys clubs, they know the kids. They're enrolled automatically into the university for a four-year bachelor's degree and certification, all paid for by Pell Grants, right? And so when you look at these three elements, it forms an ecosystem, and they're trained in the pedagogy of, of the curriculum that we're talking about. So the change is coming bottom up. We're basically putting internship teachers into a school that are being trained in the future rather than in the past. Uh, and so those three, I written a white paper called ER education rewired also stands for ER for learning taken from the medical industry as we borrowed the concept of an internship.
0: So take a break, take a breath. Let me uh, pay a couple of bills. <laughs> as You got it. So, um, Clearly unusual times right now. If, if, if you follow me, you know that sports is near and dear to my heart. Uh, we currently don't have any NHL, NBA, or baseball. Football in the fall is in doubt, but yes, there are still things to bet on. Esports, American Idol, Big Brother, the elections. And yes, they even have a $750,000 poker series. There's still lots of fun to be had right now if you go to betonline.ag and if you use the special promo code mypod100 they'll also top up your first deposit again that's uh, betonline.ag and the promo code is mypod100 something that may be of more interest to you John is that my friends at sleep envy have really done a phenomenal job in the modern day mattress world uh having a good night's sleep especially right now during corona when we're so stressed out is really important uh I had to buy one for my son when he was recently hospitalized. He came home. I laid on the thing the other night, and I was actually mind-blowing. Like, holy hell, this thing is so comfortable. Uh, it's easy. Take a quiz online, and just like your iPhone, it ships right to your door. Unlike the iPhone, you can try it for 100 nights free in the comfort of your house. Shipping both ways is free, not that you're going to need it picked up. I have an exceptional deal for you today. Uh, you use the, pro- use the promo code Row at checkout and get 25% off. On top of that, they're giving 10% of the proceeds to help with those feeding uh, the hungry during Corona. Once again, uh, please go to sleepenv.com. That's sleepenvie.com. The promo code is PRESSROW, P-R-E-S-S-R-O-W, and you get 25% off. It is awesome. They have this new couch in a box where you basically tell it the dimensions and a box shows up to your house and you've got a custom couch. It is so cool, so easy, and so reasonable, especially with my discount. So jump back, John. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press you on this because you do a really good job of it in the book. Your kid's going to grade one, two, three here in the States, and we're starting a new school based on your system. You know, today they go in and it's all, you know, 1960 style education. Nothing's changed. So you've got a teacher at the front of the classroom in front of a whiteboard, maybe a chalkboard, and they're going through the old style of learning, right? So you've got some, some reading going on, some vocabulary going on, elementary. You can't see this, but John is looking furious, shape, shaking his head, taking his glasses off, literally sweating. So in the modern school that you're designing, one, why doesn't that work? And two, Knowing that we need to still have some of that skill, how are you teaching it in the modern era?
1: Yeah, actually I'm going back to um, Frederick Froebel, who created kindergarten in Germany in 1850.
0: The best part and, of the book, go right? on.
1: And I don't know if I even had Frederick in the book, but, uh, but what Frederick realized was that the, his students were creative. And so everything was based on movement, Dance, motion, nature. And he created a set of tools that called, they were called uh, Froebel gifts. And they were, you know, they were blocks, strings, and everything that the students could create in abstract something they saw in nature. Okay. It wasn't about literacy. I mean, we know that kids read at a different age. And for us to tell a kid that, who's not reading at five, that you're stupid is, is, you know, we should put a weight around our necks and jump in the ocean, right? And so what's interesting is when kindergarten was brought over into the United States, what we did was we basically pushed the first grade down into kindergarten and changed the whole movement from one of creativity to one of literacy, all right? So the, I and it's 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 ironic that those Froebel gifts, if you will, uh, were a favorite of Frank Lloyd Wright, and are still used at the Graduate School of Architecture at MIT. Mm-hmm. I bought those for all 17 of my grandkids, and it's unbelievable what what they create. Um, so I would get back. I would get back to the to focusing on. On, on creativity and innovation, and let the literacy come more natural to the to the student. Um,
0: give us a, give, give us a tangible example.
1: Well, it's it's back to you know a, a challenge. You know, um, is your, your water safe to drink? Uh, what you know? How do you go about you, you? see, it's not something you memorize. It's something you have to discover, and in the process of doing that. Now this is a later age academic example, but you gotta learn the periodic chart, or you gotta learn certain, what elements are in our water. And wow, guess what? There are carcinogenic elements in our water, you know? Um, Well, who determines what percentage is safe? And who, you know? And so the whole learning environment becomes just uh, natural rather and and intrinsic motivated, because you're trying to find the solution rather than, okay, Here's 12 pages of long division arithmetic. It's due on Monday. You know, that's what I had, right? And, you know, and I bet if I were to go back and look at those 12 pages, I would have no mistakes on page one, maybe a mistake on page two. And by the time I got to page 12, they're half wrong, right? That is, that is not learning, you know? Um, So, so what, you know, what Varmon has done as an example is, and they're in their 23rd year of the school, but when they heard me speak and talk about challenge-based learning, they went back to their school and they revamped the school based on challenge-based learning. And you should see their test results. They don't teach to the test, but their test results are more than triple the typical results in Mexico, they're equivalent to the U.S and they're each year they're heading towards Finland.
0: Because the kids um, actually know how to think.
1: The kids learn how to think, yeah, exactly. And uh, it's a remarkable school to visit. Um, so what I'm hoping to do with ER for Learning uh, and the teaching internship program is to train these interns in this new environment so that it's natural to them, whereas Most schools of education are still based on, you know, Rockefeller's funding of the Board of Education in 1912, which was to prepare students for the assembly line. And, uh, you know, I mean, all we gotta do is look around us today and see the challenge that we're faced with and, and say, what type of individual is gonna solve that challenge? Not the individual that's gonna go look for the answer in the book. And this, this is what Steve did to me too. You know, Steve, Steve hired me because I had advanced degrees in computer science. And he, you know, and he goes, John, everybody that could buy an Apple II is, you know, has bought an Apple II that can program. Uh, there are no applications on it. Uh, I need you to design a machine that anyone could use. And I said, great, where's the book? And he goes, there is no book. And I said, well, can you point me to someone who's, who's done this before? He goes, no one has ever done it before. That's why I'm hiring you. And that was, that was a cold shower of reality in the sense that, whoa, my school didn't prepare me to think that way. You know, they prepared me to, to make something that existed maybe better, you know, cheaper, faster, but not, you know, to invent the future.
0: So most people that I've talked to, when I bring your name up, no joke when, when i tell them that you started the education department at apple do you know what they think that means no student discounts i'm serious
1: <laughs> yeah well so, uh, there's 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 a lot of truth to that because you know i mean i you know i i was fortunate enough to be the spokesperson for education and i probably spoke at three quarters of the state superintendent conferences or board conferences and I, you know, I'd say, look, I'm 70 years old, I'm gonna be 73. I'm not here to sell you a box, right? You know, anybody can do that. I'm here to talk about learning. And and, and, and so I think when you focus you know, on, on top of the line, the bottom the line sort of takes care of it. And that's why we, we went through the research. I mean, if you think about Apple, they did, the 12-year longitudinal study on uh, of Apple's classroom tomorrow when with the Apple II and what they learned was if the students engage, they're gonna learn so when I got back I said we need to do the Apple classroom tomorrow today because guess what we've got an internet we've got mobility everything has changed and what came out of that was was the framework that says today's learning environment needs to be creative you know, it needs to be challenging, it needs to be collaborative, and it needs to be relevant. And none of those elements are in the traditional memory-based pedagogy.
0: So I'm going to tell you two, two funny stories. So I, I'm being serious. Like most people, when I tell, tell them that I'm talking to somebody that started Apple education, like, oh, you mean like how teachers and college kids get discounts on <laughs> Apple stuff? And I was like, no. No. Um, that is what most people think about. And it, it is brilliant because there is a degree of the, 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 singer, the singer sewing machine phenomenon that if you get kids hooked on a brand and a piece of technology early on, and that's what they learn on, that's what they'll use in the future. What blew my mind uh, was in December, I was down in South Florida uh, with my family, and we took my son to look at a university that I'd never heard of. Uh, respectfully, I'd never heard of it called Lynn University. And the only reason most people may have heard of Lynn University is the last time Barack Obama was was going to be was going through the election uh, cycle. There was a debate held; the presidential debate uh, was held at Lynn University. Right. I had I've been to Boca a gazillion times. I went to law school in Miami. I had no idea that Lynn University existed. Uh, the reason it's relevant for this discussion is they told us in the tour that it Lynn University is an Apple school and all students there get an uh, get a iPad and everything that they do from a scholastic basis is done powered by Apple. Now that doesn't mean everything is all on Apple, but they have an iPad, whether it's registering for classes, signing into classes, notes, tests, um, their whole tuition system, everything that they do is an Apple system and that to me speaks more to the Apple education that you helped build. And I'm going to tell you something interesting. I'm not going to name the school, but after that, we went to another school, uh, a state school in the middle of the country, uh, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And we went out there and I could tell right away that my kid wasn't interested. So I was trying to (laughs) drum up the interest on the tour. So I said to the two students giving the tour, like, how technology based is this university? And they said, well, what do you mean? Like the one person was like, you don't need a computer here. Like I handwrite all my notes. And I was like, (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Like it was the complete polar opposite experience. So what, what is Apple doing in the, for those who don't know what is Apple doing in the education space right now?
1: Yeah. I mean, I remember presenting to the president of Lynn university. Okay. Um, uh and there's another university in florida that's very very powerful called full sail university um i've
0: never heard of okay. yeah
1: they they focus on um, uh, music uh movie editing uh incredible environment uh, eight week courses all, all mac based as well uh great great university um but i think you know i, I can't speak for apple today because in a sense Uh, when Steve asked me to come back, he, you know, he said, John, I don't know whether I'm going to have you run applications or I'm going to have you run education. Um, I need to fix a few things. Uh, first, uh, he decided to have me run education and he, and he said it, he goes, look, I don't know whether the problem, we've had eight years of declining revenues. I don't know whether the problem is a sales problem or a marketing problem. So I'm going to break the rules and I'm going to give you both marketing and sales. Okay. Very unique. No one else in the company had that kind of authority. And he basically just said, you fix it or I'm out of the business. All right. Well, as, as champion, I became the, you know, the champion for education. Uh, And uh, you know, one of the lessons that I had learned in the early Apple days was Steve's Steve was very articulate in describing why Apple, why Apple existed and everybody's heard the story. It was the mental bicycle, right? The amplifier for our, for our, for our mind. Um, and so I asked the question, why are, we in edu- why are we in education? And nobody could, you know, nobody could give me an answer other than your t- typical, which you mentioned sales answers, because if we get the kids early, you know, they'll buy when they're older, okay? Well, that, that didn't excite me, and so um, I, my, our vision was basically, I realized because of my son Christopher, uh, given an Apple II when he was four years old, in a sense, became the first digital native, and then when I looked at the environment that I was inheriting uh, in 2004, um, everything was digital except the schools. And so, you know, we, we created, you know, we said, look, we need to create a learning environment that meets the needs of this generation of, of digital natives. And so, you know, we defined a, a why and a, and a what and a how uh, for education, and, and we started moving that way. I never talked about the box. I always talked about learning. And, uh, and that, that worked really well unfortunately, when Steve passed away, my VP of sales, who I have a full chapter in my book, on, I call him a sales animal, and um, he, he retired. And so I think Tim, taking on a whole, you know, new responsibility, decided to break the education team up, put the sales back in the sales organization, and the marketing back in the marketing organization. So you lost your synergy, you lost your your champion, and, and they then integrated education with enterprise, okay? And so now they start looking at education as an enterprise, more infrastructure and more boxes rather than learning, okay? Now I think what's interesting now is if you look at what's happened, I believe New York bought over, over 300,000 iPads with no content, yep. no curriculum. Yep. No content in context. Uh, LA bought over 100,000. There's another state that bought over 200,000. What they need is they need that challenge based curriculum that runs on that, that would allow a student to learn inside the classroom walls as well as outside the classroom walls. Um, and so that's what, you know, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to, uh, influence, if you will, uh, Apple's education direction, which today stems to focus on coding, but coding is a subset of CBL. Everybody, everybody offers coding. Right. Okay? But CBL was the unique and in, in, in the differentiator. Um, so, you know, the, uh, it's kind of ironic because Simon Sinek's new book, uh, The Infinite Game, on page seven, he tells a story, he says, you know, I was fortunate enough to be able to speak at both Microsoft's education conference and Apple's education conference. At Microsoft's conference, all the execs got on stage and talked about how to beat Apple. At Apple's uh, education conference, all the execs got on stage and talked about how do we improve teaching and learning. And he says, and I, he goes, then I got a ride back to the hotel by the head of education He said, so I thought I would try to zing him. And I said, you know, Microsoft gave me a Zoom and it's a better product than the iPod. And my response, well, was it probably is. (laughs) And so what what Simon took from that was that Apple was in this education for the infinite game. It wasn't about a product. It was about this infinite game. And so my epitaph, if you will, or the, the ending of my book is about the infinite game. Just because I'm not an apple, doesn't mean that I'm not continuing to drive towards this, this, this pedagogy and curriculum that transforms education from the 1912, prepare our students for the factory, to the you know, 2020 that says, your student's gonna is, is find the, find the uh, solution to the next you know virus.
0: What's interesting to me is at this time, Students across the world, literally, are stuck at home in some way or another trying to learn remotely. (laughs) And when that happened, you're the first person that I thought of because one of the things that you and I talked about was the fact that what should happen is that there should be a lecture online, so to speak, and that the teacher using technology should be able to interact with a student as they work through a problem to give that student the opportunity to learn one-on-one with the teacher and actually get help along the way. So the teacher could not just sit at the front and give a, a lecture with kids off in 12 different directions, but even if it's, if it's done recorded, allow that interaction to, to occur using technology, whether it's things like Khan Academy or something like that. And yet here we are today where that environment has been forced upon us and instead of it being a positive and a vehicle to a new way of learning, instead what it's what it's turned into is a massive stressor on kids and a huge- no, <laughs> And parents. It, it's true. And yeah. a, no, it's not a stressor on parents. It's actually become a burden. Um, you know, I have a kid- I don't, who's know that, if you saw, I don't know if you saw the video of the uh, South American mother that just- She's Israeli. She's Israeli.
1: Yeah. And she goes, My kids are gonna learn that I'm dumb right you know? yeah,
0: like, I'll be <laughs> so on let, let
1: me show you let me give you an example so in the curriculum that that was developed over the last five years at the cost of forty million dollars by the way each um, each class is divided into eight units so <laughs> you know each unit is divided into 20 sessions each session is broken down into activities and each activity has a set of resources, apps, everything, okay? And and what's powerful about this is it, the student can go through there self-propelled, right? But the teacher is getting all the feedback real time. You don't need tests, okay? But what's really beautiful is if the teacher sees that Johnny is struggling with, you know, negative numbers, she can dynamically add activity per student per student so you people talk about personalized learning okay you know it's not this you and me it's the ability to deliver to that student what they need in real time to progress you know through the rest of those activities and therefore finish that unit and move on to the next unit Uh, i showed that this week to apple blew their minds no one knew that it even existed.
0: So, how far are we from that becoming a reality? Where where does somebody see that?
1: Well, it exists today. It's there's thirty six thousand students using that in Mexico and South America. The real question is uh, how I'm trying to help them bring it in to the U S. Uh, my first attempt is to expose it to Apple. Yep. Uh, the second attempt is. The teaching internship program, okay, is to integrate it into that program with the university. Seven states have already signed up for us for the teaching internship program because, as you know, we're short, we're probably short, you know, 200 to 600,000 teachers. And this COVID is going to even make it worse because, you know, they're going to, you know, they're going to have to look at their costs. They're going to have to cut back, and who are they going to cut back? They're going to cut back the youngest teachers, the ones that probably are more open to new ideas than those that have been teaching for 30 years. Now, You know, to say that you know, they can't change, but a smaller percentage of them uh, are willing to change. So I'm hoping that, uh, you know, it's almost a Trojan horse. It says, what's your real problem? Your real problem is the teacher shortage? Okay, we're going to solve that with this intern. But this intern happens to be trained now in the future of learning, not the past. And slowly it starts to migrate through.
0: So I have one last question for you and uh, and I'll let you go. This has been- And by the
1: way, people that we're talking to at the state level are not the educators. Of course, they're so. the politicians who write the checks.
0: That's right. That, well, you we go a- in and
1: say, "Guess what? We've solved your teacher problem. We've solved your remote learning problem. We've solved your cost problem because you don't need to build a fifty million dollar brick and mortar school in the future."
0: So here's uh, here's my last question for you, at least this time. we'll, we'll have you on again. I hope. Uh, <laughs> my question is standardized tests <laughs> almost as angry a look as the last time I asked you a question like this, but here we are. The SAT and the ACT are not being offered right now. Yep. One of them, I think the SAT is actually talking about issuing one from home, which could be the dumbest idea that I think I've ever heard. <laughs> one, why are, so, a good chunk of schools have basically said for the next year's school and the next two or three. By the way, we're no longer going to require it. Why are? What's your take on it? What should they do with it? And why aren't more schools, at least temporarily, abolishing it right now?
1: Well, you know, first and foremost, it's it's all it is is it is it is it, is it looks backwards. It looks at um, your ability to memorize, your ability to recall facts, uh, formulas, um, your vocabulary. Um, You know, in the book we talked about the age old, is it nature or is it nurture, right? Are you born with the intelligence or is the environment create your intelligence? And we said it's both because having been the CEO of of a genomics company, we see that one's DNA does alter, and it is altered by your your environment. So I think all that does it doesn't say anything about your potential, your ability to solve problems. It's only a, a measurement of your ability to to memorize.
0: Yep.
1: And um, uh, you know, I mean, I I I mean, I didn't get an 800 on my SAT scores, you know, and. They weren't really – we had to take them back in 65, but um, we didn't – I mean, we didn't, we didn't study for them. We didn't join. you know, pay for courses to teach us how to get a better – you know, I took my SAT score in a, in a gym in Paris, surrounded by a bunch of beautiful young ladies, right, <laughs> after I had gotten into Paris at 2 o'clock in the morning because our basketball team bus had broken down. You know, so I mean, it wasn't you know the, the end all for us, um, you know, and it's it's really kind of sad because I, like I said, I have 17 grandkids, five in college. So I have my own petri dish, and I I watched one of my granddaughters apply to, to to Berkeley where I went, and her grandmother went, and her her test score was a little bit lower than her best friend. She had better grades. She had done work in building water water plants in in Ecuador or someplace like that. Uh, and she wasn't accepted. And the girl who had a little bit higher SAT score was accepted. And I personally, you know, she ended up doing her internship between her senior year and college at Stanford University working in a research department. Okay, so you know if you're basing things on that basis. I have a friend at John Hopkins Medical School Who who struggled through school, but he's now been given the charter to redefine the admissions You know criteria for the medical school because what they're finding out that a lot of students are Are going to medical school because dad went to medical school Grandpa went to medical school and they don't really want to go to medical school. So once they get that doctor degree, they Go off and do something else. So how do you find the people that got that intrinsic passion, you know, for for saving lives, for, you know, um, and so they're look they're redoing their whole admissions. Um and like I said, as you started off the program, I think uh, you know, the fact that we've been locked up 61 days, 62 days, everything's changing. Everything's changing, you know. Uh Fortunately when I built my winery, I built my tasting room outside. So I'm I'm ahead of the game when <laughs> when it comes to for people to come taste my wine because it's what, outside. What's, it, what's the
0: name of your winery?
1: Eden Estate Wines. And in fact, I made a wine for Waz. So in <laughs> the fall, I'm I'm introducing a, a Waz Chardonnay. because um, that's his favorite. But um yeah, uh it's it's it's, it's it's discouraging. Um, you know, my my daughter, I have 12 grandkids under 12. And all 12 of those are, I wouldn't say they're being homeschooled, but they're in a kind of a blended environment where they go to school two or three days a week. And then the rest of the week, it's a responsibility of the parents. Um, I would, I can't wait to get them this curriculum that was developed by a company called Notion with Vermont School, because it'll give them everything they need to know um, to monitor their, 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 their progress of their kids. And it'll be all based on, on challenge, something that's kind of relevant to the, to this, to the student.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, I think the one thing that we didn't talk about, and again, I want to be respectful of your time is just how personalization is so important and, and figuring out what your purpose is and what your passion is. And if you're, we can all do math, but if you find the way to teach it that goes to somebody's passion and purpose they'll be much more successful
1: to me that's the role that's the key role of the teacher the role of the teacher should be to help the student identify their gifts their you know their unique gifts and allow allow that, that you know, integrate their passion and those gifts together so if you're you know,
0: teaching rudimentary boring math when you're giving an expression or a word problem at the very least, try and apply it to something or an area in which you know the student's interested.
1: Relevant, yeah, yeah. Oh. Remember the example I gave in the book about, about the uh, 11th grade class uh, uh, that wanted to write a, uh, they were taking anatomy and they wanted to create a, a, a book and, uh, for anatomy for the younger kids. And the young girl that was chosen to do the illustrations was not considered to be one of the better students, okay? But that was her role in this this challenge, in this task. Well, today she's a medical illustrator. Right. Now think about what course did you take in school that would have given you any idea that you had a talent for medical illustration? Projects. That's the only way to do it.
0: Well, his book is called Rewiring Education, How Technology Can Unlock Every Student's Potential. It's available in hardcover, softcover, Kindle, and audiobook. Uh, it's available nationwide. It's on sale right now at Amazon for $14.72. I have it here in front of me. It is the easiest, fastest read, and it is the most intriguing. And during these very difficult times, if you want uh, something to be hopeful about, it's that people like John are thinking about things like this and our future. And uh, that gives me a great deal of comfort that the world is going to change, that we're actually going to get it and we're going to get smarter, uh, maybe not in my kids' lifetime, maybe not in, for enough time for my kids to benefit, but hopefully for their kids. God help me, my grandkids. Um, John, well, this know, is... the
1: irony. The irony is that it was the number one education book in China last year.
0: Yeah. And everyone always wonders why they're so far ahead of us or more importantly, why we're, we're so far behind, uh, I can only imagine the royalties you got from the China sales. Um, John, thank you for doing this. Uh, we will be watching you. And when the, uh, the next book comes out, we will definitely have you on again. Uh, I hope yeah, we'll-
1: I gotta, I gotta correct one thing. Uh, once the book was successful, someone uh, copied it, produced it on cheaper paper, and sold it for two bucks.
0: Like I said, <laughs> not the least bit surprising. John, this has been really fun and really interesting. I love all of our conversations. I'm so happy that I could share this with a broader audience. Please stay well. Keep pumping out the wine and, uh, and the grandkids. And uh, we'll be in touch soon.
1: Send me your uh, email address and I'll send you a draft of the book. Awesome. new
0: Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next time. John, looks like you got some sunshine there in, uh, in the wine country, so go uh, enjoy a bottle of Waz. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.